0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Jasmine, it is just as hot this week as it was last week. It's ridiculous out here.
1: Yeah. I'm quarantined, so.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> out
1: a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard about that. Some some bad news in, in your family, your household, so. Uh...
1: covid has hit my house, it hasn't hit me Yeah, um, so you're,
0: but. you're hiding out in your room just <laughs> to try to avoid getting it, yeah, that's yeah. That's tough. That's tough out there. Something that I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of our friends and family have have dealt with already. But yeah, tough, tough stuff. Hopefully you're able to avoid it while, uh, you know, your husband uh, only experiences minor symptoms. So let's hope for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So best of luck to you this week. We're glad that you're able to talk to us, though. So that's (laughs) good. Uh, We have Pam Dossett on the show this week. She is a candidate in the 8th District in Western Kentucky. She's from Hopkinsville. Um, We talked to her when she ran in 2020. The district was different back then. It was mostly just Hopkins. Now, the 8th district includes a big chunk of Trigg County and all of Caldwell County. So, we talked about the change in the district, why she decided to run again, the issues that are important to her. She's a teacher, so that's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but she also had some really great, you know, she's running on like a pro family ticket, which I think is like a huge opening. I think that that's that you know, those are issues that most Democrats care about. And the thing is, that's also the issues that most people care about. So I really am glad to hear that she's running on, you know, the issues of, of you know, not just being pro-life, but being, you know, pro a good life for a lot of folks. So that's, uh, I really enjoyed our our, our conversation with Pam. Uh, what'd you think, Jasmine?
1: I thought it went really well. I think she's learned a lot since her first campaign and seems really well organized for this one. Um, and I I think it's going to be really cool to talk to some more Western Kentucky folks. That's probably an area that we neglect a little bit on this podcast just because we don't have as many connections there. So um, I really enjoyed Pam Dossett kicking off our Western Kentucky series here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of good candidates in Western Kentucky this year. So that's, you know, we'll, we'll be talking to several of them throughout the next couple of weeks. And I'm really excited to speak with several of them. Uh, Listen this week, listen in future weeks. On the show this week, though, we have a couple of things to talk about. Jasmine's going to talk to us about a big endorsement that happened uh, in the Republican primary, something that uh, you may have heard about, Donald Trump getting involved in Kentucky's gubernatorial race almost two years ahead of time. And then we have lots and lots of kind of bigger quick hits, including two budgets, the two budgets of Kentucky's two largest cities, a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, the Louisville mayor getting punched in the face and a couple of other things. So uh, without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about Daniel Cameron getting Donald Trump's endorsement.
1: All right. So, you know, sometimes I worry in these summer months that we won't have a lot to talk about. But I I feel like this is a pretty big story. Um, So on June 16th, which is a, a year and a half before the gubernatorial election, Daniel Cameron received the endorsement of Donald Trump. In part, Trump said, I've known Daniel right from the beginning of his meteoric rise, and he is absolutely outstanding in every way. He is strong on the military and our vets, a fierce defender of our borders, protected our totally under siege Second Amendment, and is a crime fighter who represents the opposite of defund the police. At every level, Daniel has stood out, and he will be a great governor of Kentucky and has my complete and total endorsement. Wow. I, n- I never read, like, Donald Trump's statements very often. That's just, like, not something I, like, waste my energy on. Something I noticed that there's a lot of random capitalization.
0: It <laughs> uh, I bless you, Jasmine, for not for not reading many of Donald Trump's random <laughs> rambling messages. They often include strange capitalization. Uh, also, the, the issues he's decided to highlight don't really have much to do with, like, state being an attorney general or like a governor yeah like Kentucky I don't know if he's defending our border from Tennesseans or you know Indiana Hoosiers no Hoosiers or something uh and you know um the second amendment isn't really something that the state government has anything to do with as well as like you know veterans is a little more interesting but mostly they intersect with the federal government so yeah it's this is uh, an interesting set of issues to highlight for the former president but he's done other much more deranged things in the past this is uh not on the top, li- top of the list of weird things he's done, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, so Cameron's campaign, I think right before the Trump endorsement, released an internal poll that showed him with a 30% lead over Ryan Quarles as well. Yeah. Um, so of course that's an internal poll so you know there were a lot for of that for what it's worth there
0: were a lot of really strange issues with this poll the guy that did it like used to be a cameron staff person the way that it was run like it was like people who had maybe voted one or zero times in the r- most recent or in like the last four republican primaries so uh A lot of, like, the sampling was weird. There were a lot of people who pointed out some weird stuff going on with this poll. So, yeah. But he did release it, and it did show him have a 30% leader for Ryan Quarles.
1: Yes. Um, So the Herald-Leader captured the Republican reaction to the Donald Trump endorsement. And I thought that article contained a lot of really good quotes. Um, It's from Austin Horn of the Herald-Leader. But Scott Jennings was interviewed as part of it. He's a conservative political commentator um, who is a longtime Mitch McConnell guy. He's worked for McConnell. And he said that he was surprised at how early Cameron received the endorsement. Kelly Craft's reaction. Um, Kelly Craft, of course, is rumored to um, be a gubernatorial candidate, but hasn't announced that she's running yet. Um, She said, I've spent the last year traveling around Kentucky talking to voters and hearing the issues that are important to them. The support and confidence I have received throughout the state has been humbling and encouraging. My faith, family, and principles will always be the compass I follow. I am enthusiastic and motivated about helping Kentucky, Stay tuned. Um, So stay tuned was what Daniel Cameron said a few weeks before he announced. So I don't know what that means, but it sounds like she might be running as well. She seemed to kind of ignore the Trump endorsement, though. Right. She was also seen standing next to Trump at the derby last month. So.
0: There's that. The 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 odd commentary about that was that like she worked really, really hard to get that photo up with Donald Trump. It lasted like an instant and then he like disappeared without even really talking yeah. to her. So, you know, maybe not such a shock you didn't endorse her, maybe.
1: So Ryan Quarles pointed to his endorsements from 30 county judge executives and several legislators. Um, so he didn't really, you know, talk much about the Trump endorsement either. Savannah Maddox said, I entered this race with no presumption of receiving President Trump's endorsement, but with every expectation of standing out as an authentic conservative who has led from the front and resisting Andy Beshear's big government overreach every step of the way. Kentuckians will choose a candidate who has a proven track record of defending our constitutional rights and freedoms. And then a couple of other maybe like lesser known uh, Candidates or potential candidates. Mike Carmen said that the endorsement doesn't change anything for him, but that he wishes he'd had the chance to get in front of Trump. So sounds like, to, like he was just jealous that Daniel Cameron got to meet it.
0: <laughs> yeah, like to get his autograph or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, Mike Carmen?
1: <laughs> and Max Waz, uh, who is a senator who has kind of, you know, led on some of these like parents' rights, like education issues and those kind of things. He's been rumored to be. candidate, he said he's keeping all his options on the table. Um, So when asked what the endorsement meant for the relationship between Mitch McConnell and Daniel Cameron, Scott Jennings said he thinks basically he said it says more about Daniel Cameron's autonomy than anything else and that no one should read into anything about him and McConnell's relationship. Um, He also said that he expects mcconnell to run in 2026 and said he's at the top of his game right now uh so what do you think about that robert
0: oh man i don't know like how i I mean mcconnell will be in his later 70s and maybe his 80s in 26 right i mean i don't know i don't know exactly yeah i don't i don't know he's been definitely
1: well into his 80s
0: yeah yeah. I mean, there there's a long history of very, very old people running for Senate in the United States. Um, the way that the legislature works on the federal level is like seniority is really rewarded. So like, it's bad for you to lose your position like it's and start all over like so we do like reward people for continuing to run. So you know, I wouldn't be shocked by it. Uh, it would be pretty disappointing. I mean, I don't think it would be very difficult. I, I don't know what, who knows what politics will look like in 2026, but I wouldn't be shocked if he runs. I, I don't, I think Scott Jennings will say anything to like kiss up to Mitch McConnell though. So <laughs> I don't think he actually knows anything about it. So
1: Mitch McConnell is 80 right now. Yeah.
0: So he'd be 86. So
1: or he'll be 84. 84. Yeah. In 2026. The oldest sitting Senator I think is Diane Feinstein and she's 88.
0: Is Chuck so. Grassley? Chuck Grassley might be older than than her. I'm not sure. There, there's a lot of old folks in the Senate. Gerontocracy is what I we think, have.
1: I think they're the same age, actually. Her gotcha. birthday may be before his, okay. but they're okay. they're both 88. So um, McConnell w- would be right up there with him with them if he if he serves a full term in 2026. Um, so the last person who was quoted in that article is Andrew Cooper Ryder, who was, um, a Liberty candidate. He, his, his claim to fame was, um, defying Bashir's COVID orders at his coffee shop. And then he ran for Senate against Donald Douglas. And he had quotes in that Herald leader, leader article and said that he's considering running for state treasurer.
0: I think that's a good fit for him. I mean, uh, we've talked a lot about, like, the liberty versus traditional split in the Republican Party that's kind of going on right now. Um, And, and, you know, the next kind of step for that to take is how it plays out in the Republican primary for these state-level offices. And I think you will see some of those things happen. It will be interesting to see how those things all get divided up. But, I mean – you know, it doesn't take a lot to be the state treasurer. Uh, Andrew Cooper Rider, uh owns a business. I don't know what else he does. So, I mean, you know, if he wants to get in politics, there's a long and storied path of, like, people running for treasurer with the hopes of being able to do something better later.
1: Hmm. My question after the Trump endorsement, Robert, is who do you think is the most disappointed about Daniel Cameron getting the endorsement?
0: For me, that's probably going to be Kelly Craft because she... You know, is of the people running, she was in the Trump administration. I mean, she worked at the UN as mm-hmm. an ambassador and, like, you know, was likely, you know, working very closely with the actual Trump administration. I, I mean, not only is it he endorsed somebody else. But it's like kind of a slap in the face, because you're working with this person, and he didn't even endorse you. So that's, that's really, really bad for her. I mean, I think that that was kind of what she was really banking on to be able to make a splash. If she does get in, she's going to have to to increase her name recognition very quickly. Getting the Trump endorsements a huge way to do that. And obviously, that's not on the table anymore.
1: I think that's probably right. I think that Savannah Maddox would be a close second, though, because I mean, she fits into the the Trumpy Republican, I think, and so I would think not having that endorsement would be pretty disappointing. So
0: somewhere. I have, I I, so I have kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know. I I pay attention to politics pretty closely on the federal and the state level. I'm kind of getting a sense that there is like an emerging like Trumpy but not Trump, going like going past Trump movement in the Republican Party, and I think Savannah Maddox is like. Kind of an important figure in that whole movement. I wouldn't be surprised, especially since 2023 will be very close to 2024, and the Republican primary for president will be well underway before the Kentucky primary. That Savannah Maddox might court the Ron DeSantis endorsement uh, at the time mm-hmm. he will probably be running against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And I, you know, I think that you know there is a specific type of person who really likes Savannah Maddox and really likes Ron DeSantis as well. I I, I think that they're kind of similar political figures and that they're very, very Trumpy. But in some ways they go beyond him while maybe not being as like unhinged. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know for her. I think that, yeah, it would be disappointing. Obviously, she wants it. Obviously, that's a political figure that's very close to her. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I definitely think you're right that there is like a wing of conservatives that is is maybe beyond Trump. But I think as far as voters go, I think a lot of those voters who might vote for Savannah Maddox might also be big Trump fans,
0: too. Oh, they're all big Trump Trump
1: fans. Right. Just like your average Liberty conservative voter. And so I would think she would have wanted that endorsement. Um, but I, I do think you're right that the most disappointed has to be Kelly Craft. Yeah. Um, so then my next question is, do you think that Kelly Craft uh, will run for governor?
0: That is something I think, I don't know, the tea leaves seem to be point, pointing kind of closer to it or were before this this happened. I, I think that there's no room for her. I think it's a bad political move for her to run yeah. for governor. I think she should run for like secret. Well, no, there already is a Secretary of State. I think that that would be a bad thing for her to do. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what she like. There's not really a lot of a lot of places for her to go. So if she wants to hold political office, that's the thing for her to do. But I mean, I think keep your powder dry and run in 2027. Um, she's not that old, uh, mm-hmm. and and Andy Bashir probably. I mean, at this point, I think a lot of people are kind of favoring him as likely to get reelected. Um, so if you're Kelly Kelly Craft, like cheer for Bashir to win and then run in 2027. I think that that's the best best kind of case for her. Um, but, you know, also, like, if you're really rich, you can just kind of do whatever you want. So she, prob- she might just do it just to do it. So who knows?
1: Yeah. I've always thought that she was definitely going to run. When she says stay tuned, I think that means she's running for something. I don't know if it's governor, but then when you look at the other state offices, i agree I, i'm not sure where there's room for her but maybe treasurer there allison ball is rumored to be running for mike harman's auditor spot um you know she could challenge potentially andrew cooper writer, um as a more moderate republican candidate for treasurer uh so maybe that's an option but i i, I do think she wants to run for something in 2023 but i, I do think you're right i just don't think that there's
0: room for her yeah bring back the old railroad commission seats uh she could run for those or something like i don't know (laughs) what one thing i did want to say about this jasmine is i do think that this is a huge coup for daniel cameron like i think yeah
1: that that, well that was my next question robert (laughs) so go ahead
0: yeah I, i do think it's like a huge deal for daniel cameron i i had been like really all in and thinking like this is ryan quarles like it's gonna be a layup for ryan quarles i just don't see how how Daniel Cameron can really, you know, uh, beat Ryan Quarles in this race because he's so much well-networked, and more well-networked in Republican circles in Kentucky. I mean, Daniel Cameron kind of splash onto the scene uh you know this term because of his closeness with Mitch McConnell uh that's the network he seems to be the most closely associated with it seems like that there's some sort of weird fallout going on there um that was kind of what I read in in between the lines of what Scott Jennings was saying there um but yes I think that this is huge for Daniel Cameron in, in saying that like he he is his own guy he can get this endorsement he he's running a really serious campaign that's a, that's a huge deal
1: yeah I think it is a really big deal for daniel cameron and i i think maybe when we talked about the republican field maybe i underestimated daniel cameron and and didn't think enough about the name recognition that he already had among republicans because of you know how he treated the brianna taylor case and and things like that and so i think it's a, a pretty big deal for him you know i i think we we do live in a state uh where trump is still Really popular, I think. Yeah,
0: I, I do want to take a step away from just the politics of the situation, and I mean, just address like the reality of, of this. And and that's like, I don't, Jasmine, I don't know if you've been listening or watching much of the January sixth committee meetings that have been going on in, in Washington um, in the past couple of weeks, but just like the absolute insanity that those things represent about like how close like american democracy came from like ceasing to exist like we had a mob that almost killed the vice president on the orders of the president and that was this guy who daniel cameron is seeking the endorsement of to me it also plays into my opinion of Daniel Cameron as incredibly vapid and totally lacking in substance, because this man Donald Trump is not serious. He's a scary person. The fact that you would want his endorsement to me is a signal that you are you're a bad you're a bad person. Like you're just not you're not a legitimate person. Now all of the Republicans wanted this you know endorsement. Yeah, There's...
1: I was gonna say I don't think any of these people would have shied away from that endorsement.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right about that. But just like to 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 just remember what we're talking about here and that's like yeah. this guy that tried to form in an insurrection like he you know he tried to overthrow the american government and that's that's kind of what we're dealing with is like a field of republican candidates that are falling over themselves to get that endorsement which is scary uh and also not good um but you know just want to make sure we mention that hmm yeah Well, big news for sure. Uh, That was what we wanted to talk about mostly. But there are several other things we did want to talk about. So Jasmine, on Friday, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher was punched at an event at 4th Street Live in Louisville. LMPD, the Louisville Metro Police Department, said that the mayor was fine. He resumed his normal duties on Monday. And they released a few very blurry photos of the alleged assailant a few hours later. And then on Tuesday, a 30-year-old man was arrested and charged with fourth-degree assault related to punching the mayor. There are a lot of questions about the mayor's security detail, which obviously was very lax at the incident. Uh, Craig Greenberg, the current Democratic mayoral nominee, tweeted his sympathies, and some of the national coverage of the punch drew a comparison between Fisher being punched and the shooting in Greenberg's office. We can't really say what the motivations were for the punch, uh, but to me, it seems like a stretch. The mayor tried to kind of make light of it. He said he was like doing his Muhammad Ali impression and like made some jokes. One of them, they asked him why he did it. And he made a joke about bike lanes that I actually thought was pretty funny. Um, I don't know, Jasmine. You know, we we haven't been super kind to Greg Fisher throughout the past couple of years. But I think uh, we can be an anti-punching the mayor podcast. I don't know. What do you think? Bad idea to punch the mayor?
1: Yeah, I'm not pro-punching the mayor.
0: Yeah, it's a kind of a wild story. I I just like don't don't do that. That's bad. Don't do that. That just I I I don't know. I don't know what that What 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 do you take away from all of this? Is it just like an incident that happened that we'll remember or is it is it mean anything more than that?
1: I don't think it means anything more than that. I mean, I do think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Mayor Fisher especially among like black Louisvilleians. um but I, I think this seems like a one off situation. I will say, like his bond was set at twenty five thousand full cash, which I've never seen that as a bond for like a minor injury assault. So that's a really high bond. It was reduced to five thousand today or, or yesterday, I think, but um it sounds like they they are treating it really seriously. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad to punch a public official like that. I I understand why it would be a little bit different. But I mean, kind of the way that we treat pretrial incarceration, and what the purpose of it is supposed to be, is like, to make sure that you show up at court, like, that's the idea. I don't think that it's necessarily, like, should be used in that way. But yeah, I, I guess it, I guess it makes some sense, but not really. Huh. All right, Jasmine. The Supreme Court of Kentucky ruled that Jefferson County Public Schools' most recent property tax increase was legal. The case had been brought by a conservative anti-tax group that sought to have a referendum on the tax, but but it was discovered that, you know, when they brought the required signatures that they submitted, uh, a lot of them were bad, un- enough to... Put them under the threshold that they needed to actually trigger a referendum. The tax money had been collected already, but it was being held in escrow in lieu of, in light of the, you know, this this whole, uh, court case. Now it can actually be spent. The plan is for much of this money to be spent on capital improvements, including new schools and payments for like the new plan that the student assignment plan that was put together by the JCPS. Um, and also just having the cash and having the taxing authority increases the, uh, bonding authority that the, this the, the JCPS has significantly. So they're actually able to build and, and bond much larger capital projects. Um, it's good to be, get some closure on this. I, I I feel like we've talked about this court case a few times in the past and we thought that it was likely that JCPS was going to win but that's good to know that we're actually going to be able to get get this on the road get this show moving uh, with the new student assignment plan that does require require significant investments in lots of capital projects across the county
1: yeah I think in Louisville the the newest high school was built in the late 60s or something like that Ballard High School Yeah. yeah and so I think uh this this tax money is much needed
0: yeah I, I just i don't think there's any plans to actually build any new high schools but uh yeah that is true maybe improve some of them um Okay, Lexington passed its $473 million budget. That's the largest budget in the city's history. We spoke about Mayor Linda Gordon's budget proposal, which was about $460 million. It appears that the LFUCG Council adopted her budget and added about $15 million to retain, quote, public safety employees, unquote, which that's police officers, but also a few other things. And also they spent some of the money to increase the amount of paving that the city was going to do. Only two council members in, ended up voting no on the budget, and one of them was was David Kloiber, who is Mayor Gorton's opponent in November. All right. Moving, uh, you know, west on 64, just slightly Louisville's budget cleared an important hurdle when the budget committee voted to advance the revised budget. It does make some changes to Mayor Fisher's budget, including more money for paving, paving popular thing to add by councils. Uh, The budget is one point three billion dollars. Currently, we're going to talk some more about it when it eventually passes the full Metro Council, whatever it is. So we'll talk about what differences and changes happen. But this is a key vote. The budget committee is the one that does all the interviews and talks to all these people and has to hustle down and, and, you know, take all these notes and figure out what's going on. Uh, Really, they're the ones that do most of the legwork around the budget. So it's likely it's going to pass mostly in the way that it's, it's been uh, advanced out of this committee. So big news uh, here, but not as big as Lexington, which passed their budget all the way through the council. Lastly, during the 2022 legislative session, the legislature passed a bill that gave Kentucky State University a large amount of money, 23 million dollars, in order to plug a financial hole it found itself in after the resignation of its most recent president. We talked about this story a couple of times when we learned about all the bad news about the former president and uh, throughout the legislative session when the legislature was bail- uh, you know discussing bailing out KSU. One of the strings attached to HB uh, one of the one of the strings attached to the bill that was passed is that the university needed to name an interim president, and last week four finalists were announced. All four have extensive backgrounds in higher education at HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, like KSU. And then three of the finalists are men, one is a woman, all four are black. And, and naming the finalists for the presidency is a different tact than the most recent openings at UK and UofL when the pro, uh, the process, uh, you know, proceeded in secrecy um, it, to, to um, you know, some complaints from alumni and community groups. These are public public universities uh, with the searches for the president president advancing in secret, KSU taking a different path, making the names public so that people can see what they are. Um, Jasmine, I don't know if you took a look at the names, but I mean, I don't know them, but there were four very impressive candidates um, that would, I think, make good presidents. So, you know, I don't know if that's what they're hoping to do. Advances interim president to the presidency eventually. Um, But yeah, uh, you know, interesting names, uh, interesting backgrounds. So hopefully, hopefully we can get KSU on the road to uh, success here here soon. All right. Well, that's enough for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Pam Dossett.
1: Pam Dossett is the Democratic nominee for the 8th House District in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. She's a teacher at the Virtual Learning Academy through Christian County Schools, and she was the 2020 nominee for the 8th District historically the 8th district has been one of the more competitive seats for the legislature but the district has changed substantially to include all of Caldwell and some of Trigg County and now splits Hopkinsville in two Uh, so we'll be talking about that a little bit more later but Pam Dossett welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast
0: thank you it's a pleasure yeah, we're really thrilled that you're here. So, you know, you made the decision after losing in 2020 that you wanted to return as a candidate in 2022. So tell us how you came to that decision, why you why you wanted to subject yourself to this again.
2: <laughs> well, a couple of reasons. One, my numbers looked really good. You know, I didn't lose by that much, and I won Christian County by 17 votes, which, you know, I'll take 17 votes all day long. That is that's great. So um looking at that data, we decided this is doable, especially in a campaign without COVID restrictions. So we uh, decided to jump in again. And also I knew this fight for representation wasn't over. This, uh, the representative we have now, um, votes according to party, doesn't really listen to voters. And I'm convinced that uh, people want someone who's gonna listen. Who wants to hear their wants, their needs, their hopes, their dreams, and they will vote accordingly if they hear that message. I, I feel really strongly about
0: that. Absolutely, uh, and and that that sounds that sounds great. Good reasons to be running. We have been talking to several candidates. You know, we we just talked to several in the Lexington area who were first time candidates, and and you, of course, ran. Uh, in 2020 and you know like you mentioned it was a very different environment in, in the terms of like not being able to go door to door because of covid and everything like that but you know you do have some experience so i'm interested to know you know what about 2020 have you learned that you can apply to 2022 and and you know what uh what did you learn in 2020 that you won't be repeating in 2022 uh just kind of how is your experience informing all of what you're doing now
2: yeah a couple of things come to mind uh in my polling data, which was done about six weeks before the election, voters said that they would vote for someone other than my opponent if they knew someone was running. So, you know, that's a big red flag for me. Like, oh, OK, nobody really knew I was running. You know, um, so getting my name out there, name recognition, face recognition um, is going to be a big component for us this time. Um, also. Women. Women. Uh, women really resonated with my message the especially uh republican women funny enough so we know there are pockets of voters to be had if i could just get to them which this time i will be able to i will be able to speak publicly you know the last time i spoke publicly in my 2020 campaign was in march literally 5 days before the governor put us in a state of emergency. So I can speak publicly. I can have those one-on-one conversations now. So that component is going to be really big for us. We're going to start, I think, with a huge media blast just to get name recognition. We're going to start strong with that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you know um, a lot about some digital campaigning from your 2020 election, but a lot of stuff is probably a lot different this time. We did want to talk about your district a little bit. So the 8th District changed a lot in redistricting, and it now includes uh, significant amounts of rural Christian County and then some of Trigg and all of Caldwell County. So you know, those are more rural and conservative areas than Hopkinsville. So tell us your approach to campaigning in these areas that are um, outside your home.
2: Yes, that part of our campaign, we have had to restructure completely. We've built coalitions in each county. We have a coalition uh, here in Christian County and Hopkinsville especially. I have built a coalition in Trigg and built a coalition in Caldwell. So really it is like running three different campaigns. And, you know, you if looking at a map, you think, oh, well, all those little cities, you know, they have a lot in common. There's Hopkinsville and Dawson and Princeton and Katy's and Often, you know, they're kind of make a little Mm -hmm. circle on the map, but you could not find three counties with more different demographics, (laughs) yeah, socioeconomic, uh, industry, it, it, the economy, it's just completely different. And the messaging, uh, while I, you know, maintain a fundamental democratic approach as, you know, as a Democrat, my messaging has to be different. Like, for example, in Caldwell, um, six months later, they're still recovering from tornado damage, uh both physically and mentally and emotionally. Um, a lot of people had to move from those communities. A lot of people are still dealing with FEMA, believe it or not. A lot of people are experiencing PTSD. You know, when it looks like a storm cloud is approaching, they have to go and stay at someone's house because of the fear and the terror. Um, I spoke to this one woman, she was trapped in her house and had to be removed by rescue workers. I mean, that's traumatizing and that doesn't just go away. So Those people have needs that people in Trigg may not have. You know, my folks in Trigg are watching this LBL funding legislation pretty closely, you know, that Mitch McConnell and Comer are are sponsoring and it's still in committee right now. But that money is going to be really huge for Trigg County. So, you know, like I said, crafting different messages to fit people's needs has really characterized this campaign quite a bit.
0: Just for clarification for our folks, that's out of Western Kentucky. LBL is the land between the lakes, which is right next to to Caldwell or Trigg County. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yes. Thank okay. you for clarifying yeah. <laughs> Just making sure we got it right. Yeah.
2: But that's yeah. a huge, huge area for them. It's a huge income maker, it's a huge mm-hmm. uh, job generator. And, you know, people recreate there and bring in a lot of income for that community.
1: Yeah. That, you know, talking about, you know, modifying your message for different areas you mentioned tornado relief already, but, you know, what are some other issues you think that mean the most to voters in small cities and rural voters?
2: Well, I'm framing my campaign as a local Democrat, a local Democrat that's going to listen, that cares about your wants and your needs, cares about issues that are important to you. And I will tell you, people care about the things that impact them every day. And number one that I have heard about is access to affordable medicine, access to healthcare, um, access to uh, affordable housing. That's been huge. A livable wage, quality child care, and public transportation. You know, we live in a rural area where people can't just walk to work. We need some kind of public transportation. Now, Hopkinsville has a uh, a bus system, which is basically just, you know, we have five or six vans that run a route <laughs> every day. But more rural places, people need help getting to work and getting their kids to, to child care, things like that. People want improvements in the things in their everyday life.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Hopkinsville, you know, has always had a single member in the Kentucky legislature, well, for at least a very long time. And the current map splits the city in two. Um, It's not the only city that that happened to, but does it worry you that, you know, win or lose in your campaign that your city will not be speaking with a singular voice next year in the legislature?
2: Well, you know, that is a really great question. Um, I still have 18 precincts in Hopkinsville. So the majority of the precincts, uh, are in District Eight, but yes, some of the precincts went to House District Nine. Now I am great friends. I have a great relationship with the uh, woman who's running as a Democrat in House District Nine, and I think if we both got elected, she and I could do great things together for this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our messages are very much aligned. Now, if if her opponent wins, you know I I have a relationship with him. And I think we could find some common ground. I do. I I think that that's really why we're in the legislature is to serve uh, the people of Hoptown in their best interests. So I would do everything I could to work with him.
0: Yeah, we, we're actually going to speak with uh, Miss Crockham soon, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, yeah so oh, that's she's
2: a dynamo. Yeah, <laughs> she's,
0: that, there's a lot of good folks running in Western Kentucky this year. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about it. So, and it is yeah. it's so interesting. You know, we always talk about the difference between rural and urban issues, but healthcare and housing, you know, those are important right. issues for just about everybody, no matter where you are. Um, Got it. You know, you are running as uh, for office, and also are a teacher. Um, and and you know that's that's an interesting combination. It's a lot of work for sure. So tell us a bit what it's like trying to do a really difficult classroom job. Well, classroom, virtual classroom, I guess in your case. Uh, in yeah. addition to running for office across three different counties.
2: Oh well, okay. One thing is, I have a lot of help. I have uh, built a, an amazing team. I have an incredible campaign manager slash treasurer, and she's a retired teacher, so she does a lot of the day-to-day work that I cannot do during school hours, right? She makes those phone calls and, and things like that. We also have a cadre of volunteers that are willing to go out, put up signs. You know, those are components we did not have last time. We tried to do everything ourselves, and we learned that lesson very quickly. It, this is not a, a one- or two-person job. So building those coalitions, building those teams, it has been key. Now, my job as a virtual teacher is I basically sit like in a computer lab that looks like a call center. I wear headphones. I jump in and out of Google Meets all day long. And it's great. I love it. Um, we serve about 300 kids, grades 4 to 12, and uh, a lot of non-traditional learners, you know, kids that don't do well in big groups. We serve kids that have health issues that cannot be uh, in a mainstream classroom. We serve a lot of kids that are quote unquote gifted that work two and three and four levels ahead. We, you know, I can jump into a Google meet with them one-on-one and give them a lot of personalized instruction. So I love it. It gives me great flexibility. And uh, this old dog has learned some new tricks. I really (laughs) like learning. (laughs) I like learning the, um, electronic aspects of instruction. It's been, it's been great for me. Very stimulating.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you specifically about that, but that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting opportunity. So just anything else you want to mention about uh, working inside a virtual classroom? I mean, in addition to being a, a political candidate, we are always interested in education and, and kind of how the the pandemic changed a lot of things for that permanently. So, you know, um, do you feel like that this model is here to stay? Do you feel like uh, it's, it's really helping uh, the kids who are taking part in it right now?
2: Yes, I do think it's here to stay. Um, A lot of our kids, well, I wouldn't say a lot. I'd say some of our students deal with mental health issues, anxiety, social anxiety, especially. That's not going away. And serving those kids in ways that meet their needs, I think that is excellent education, no matter what it looks like, whether it's in the classroom or virtual or uh, whatever form it may take. So our superintendent has assured us that this is going to be, uh, maintained. It's going to be funded, and uh, I'm thrilled about that because you know, really, education is about meeting kids' needs, and that and that's what we're all about.
0: Absolutely. That's great to hear. Um, you know, but if you make it to the legislature as a teacher, uh, you know, education is a, is a huge priority for the legislature and you bring a specific perspective to that. I mean, we're, there's a lot of teachers in the legislature, but, you know, you would be one of the only rural Democrats who's a teacher in the legislature if you if you were to win. So what education issues do you hope to address in the legislature if you win your race?
2: Well, the bottom line is this. I think Republicans are following a national agenda of privatizing edu- education you know when you look at the state's budget and you see that 50% of our budget goes to education everybody wants a slice of that pie right let's privatize that and and we can dip in and and make lots and lots of money so given that overall theme you know we're trying to put out fires as we go first it was pensions then it was charters then it was vouchers then it was public funds for private schooling you know like Tina Bojanowski said, it's death by a thousand cuts, and they're going to find a way to diminish, disband public schools the best that they can. So that, that's going to be number one on my radar, um, and charter schools especially. And, you know, here's what I say about charter schools. There's nothing that a charter school can do for kids that a public school can't do with the proper funding and the proper policy. And, and that's just the bottom line. Unless you want to educate your child in a religious way or away from kids that you deem uh, undesirable. And that's just the truth of it. So, uh, you know, I'm ready and willing to stand up and have that uh, conversation in the legislature.
1: Yeah, I think Tina Bojanowski is is our public education queen in Frankfurt. So um, good to see that you would be aligned with her there.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's amazing.
1: Besides education, um, what other issues do you hope to address in Frankfurt? You know,
2: if elected, I will be the first woman uh, to serve in this uh, district. And I'm really excited about that. I would be honored to hold that position and bring a voice to the legislature that we don't hear very often, and that is the needs of women and children. You know, my opponent likes to say right to life, but I say, what about the right to a decent life? The group living in the number one level of poverty are babies, ages zero to 10. The next highest group are young women, ages 18 to 34. We rank number one in childhood abuse and neglect. We jail and incarcerate more women than almost anybody in the world. Kentucky does. We are putting our maternal health at risk and all of these data points that I've just mentioned disproportionately affect black women and children and women and children of color. And it's just not okay with me. The status quo is not okay. Uh, You're not going to hear my opponent talk about these issues at all. He doesn't give them a second thought. These issues need to be brought to the forefront. We have sat with a Republican supermajority for years. And none of these data points have changed. I'm not okay with that.
0: No, that's great. I, I really love to hear you talk about the intersection of you know race and, and class and and uh, you know economic outcomes for families. Uh, I mean, folks may not realize that you know Christian County is uh, I think the third most black county in in Kentucky. Fulton County I think is second, and it's very very small all the way out there in, in far western Kentucky. But but Christian County has such a You know, it's a very diverse county, which is, you know, just in case people didn't know that that's important context. Um, But yeah, you know, you you've already mentioned uh, that you have a great team uh, that you're building. But if there are folks that want to get involved, either out there in Western Kentucky, or if people are listening from Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, or wherever, uh, how can they get involved in in your campaign in some some way?
2: Well, I would suggest going to my website. It's wwwpam four kentucky.com and it's f-o-r-k-y so it looks like pam (laughs) forky.com yeah that's me so you can find out more about me there you can donate there i'm also on facebook i'm on twitter and i'm on instagram pam for k-y
0: excellent well thank you so much for joining us today we really do appreciate it
1: yes thank you for having me it's been great
0: jasmine how can people get a hold of us
1: they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky Podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the DimCast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.